Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the word that you have given to us. God, you know that we need to hear from you. Uh, it, it is so easy, Lord, for us uh, to, to feel weak and strong at the same time. And Lord, sometimes in, in that strength, we, we feel more capable than we really are. And so we pray that you would give us a, a, a attention this morning, but pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, Lord, to set us free, to set us free to walk in, in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, to know you as you are. Lord, we pray that you would lift the burdens uh, off our hearts, even though, God, if we might go through difficult circumstances, Lord, we know that we don't have to carry those burdens ourselves. And so help us to cast those upon you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, my family and I uh, just finished a, a video series by Ligonier Ministries on the life of Samson, taught by Bob Godfrey. And Dr. Godfrey was talking about Samson's life from Hebrews chapter 11, where he is mentioned. And Dr. Godfrey was giving some explanation about the, the background of the book of Hebrews, which we've talked about a lot already in our series, but I won't rehash that. But just things like how this was written to Jewish Christians who were struggling in their faith. Many have been put in prison or persecuted or things like that. But then Doc, Dr. Godfrey went on and he said, but, but think about the difference between Judaism and Christianity. And that'll help you to understand maybe some of the struggles that these Christians had he said, if you think about Judaism, Judaism was a well-established religion. It had been around for hundreds, thousands of, of years. And it was an, an, uh, an amazing religion. As a matter of fact, so much so that the Roman Empire made provision that allowed the Jews to continue to worship even though they occupied uh, the Jewish land. And so there was, uh, in one sense, a, a I don't know if there's a respect, but there was an allowance for that religion to continue on because it had been so well established. But it was also an impressive religion. If you think about it with the temple, uh, which was magnificent. I mean, if you had stood on the Mount of Olives uh, looking across the Kidron Valley down into Jerusalem, you would have been able to pick out the temple because it stood out amongst all the other buildings. And not only that, but as a worship that was very sensory oriented, you could hear the, the, the animals that were about to be sacrificed or uh, you could smell the fire. You could see the priest come out in all of his garb, which it would have significance for every piece of clothing and everything that he wore uh, meant something uh, for the people as they worshiped the Lord. And yet then now you're talking about a people who once belonged to that, who now belong to this tiny small sect called Christianity that was actually pretty new. And, uh, and they didn't have all the, the pomp and circumstance. Instead, their focus was the preaching of the word of God and standing on the promises of God. And so you can understand as, as these Jewish Christians were wrestling in their faith and they're thinking, look, we have this and all we have is difficulty. Why would we maybe not return to that? You could understand why it was so needful for the writer of Hebrews to explain to them, say, I know this looks fantastic. I know if you look at the Jewish religion with all of its outward stuff, it looks amazing. But the reality is that's just a shadow, actually, of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. 
not only what he has done in the past on the cross, but even what he is still doing today, even right now. So let me explain that to you. So it was important for them to hear that. But it's important for us as Christians to hear that as well. As well, because, you know, we don't live in a day and time where people talk in terms of temples and sacrifices and and high priest and, and things like that. We're more of a rugged individual country, you know, who we hear the gospel. Maybe the Lord convicts us of our the Lord does convict us of our sins. We we repent. We ask for his forgiveness and we come to faith in, in Jesus Christ. But but oftentimes. You know, we don't always understand the, the fullness of what it is that God has shown us in his word about who he is and, and how we need to live. And so it's important that we hear this. I mean, to understand that we serve a holy God, a holy God that is perfect, that is majestic, that is righteous in, in every way. And yet here we are as people who are born into sin. How can we have any kind of relationship with such a God. Um, because everything that we stand for in our sinfulness is in rebellion to who God is. And so therefore, we need a mediator. We need a priest. We need a high priest who can intercede on, on our behalf. And I know that even as Christians, we intellectually know this, but, but experientially, do we really grasp what it is that Christ has done for us? And, and as we study the book of Hebrews, um, it's my prayer that this study would form and shape the contour of our lives. That it would be something that would be defining in not only what we believe, but also in how we live as well. I know for me, it's, it's challenged me um, for a number of years. Uh, the passage that we studied just this past week about Christ. Um, providing the way into the throne room of grace was was something that had really struck me. And it really changed the way I prayed. It, it changed the way of, of uh, not only how I prayed, but also how I prayed for others as well. I pray for myself, but I pray for my family, for my extended family, and for you as my church family as well. I pray for you on a regular basis as, as I think about that, that as we face the temptations every day as you get up, I'm praying for you that as Satan, you encounter Satan and the temptations, as you, uh, the desires of your heart, the sin that seeks to master you, that you can put that sin to death that you won't just try to do these things in and of your own strength, that as you encounter difficulties in your days, that you won't just try to figure it out the best way that you know how, but instead that you will turn to your high priest who loves you, that you will rely upon his grace and, and upon his mercy. And so, you know, as we go through this book, I know while some of the things may sound strange, they have real life application that I want us to continue to pay attention to. And, and we're going to continue to look at Christ as our high priest. He's he's already the author has already mentioned this a time or two in our text. But uh, as we get into chapter seven, this is going to be a main theme of the book of Hebrews. And 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 so we'll give more and more attention to this topic but, but this morning as we look at this, what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that Jesus is a more perfect high priest. He is our perfect high priest, more perfect than even Aaron himself. And, and I know for us, we may go, okay, that's, that's fine. But for these early Jewish Christians, that would have been amazing. 
Because Israel could trace the succession of the high priest all the way back to Aaron. The priesthood was a big deal in the Jewish community. And so this morning, really what the author here is seeking to show us is just two things. First of all, he wants us to look at the old covenant Jewish high priest and the requirements that were required for a person to be a priest. And then he wants us to see that Jesus has met those requirements. Actually, he's more than met those requirements. He has exceeded those requirements. So let's look at these two points today. Uh, as, we, as we look at the Jewish high priest, he, he opens by saying that every high priest is chosen from among men. That literally means out of men. It's a statement that really points back to uh, the, uh, the original call that, that Aaron received when God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, he said, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. You see, only a man can represent a man before the Lord. Not an angel, not any other creatures, uh, no one else. Only a man. You might think, well, an angel might be actually a good go-between between man and God because the angels live in heaven. They're heavenly beings, and yet they're created beings, and so they would understand that dynamic. But the Lord says, no, only a man could represent God's people and could stand in their place. And, and at the same time, while this priest was out of, had the solidarity with his fellow men of the nation of Israel, he was also distinct from them too as well because he had to be from the line or the lineage of Aaron and who was from the tribe of Levi. And, and even his um, work in the temple every day would have been a reminder of how different he is from his fellow uh, Hebrew. Uh, he could go into places in the temple that no one else could go. He could utilize the, the sacred things in ways that no one else could do. Um, as a matter of fact, if any other uh, man wanted to approach God or any other person wanted to approach God, they could only do so if they went through the priest. And so the priest was ordinary. He was out of he, uh, the nation of Israel, but he was also very unique. But we also read in verse 1 that he was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The priests were able to stand as representatives through the acts of sacrifices. As a matter of fact, he mentions that, the sacrifices that the priests would offer on the behalf of the people. And, and there were many priests, I think you have to understand that, there were many priests, as a matter of fact, there were a rotation that, in which you would serve on certain times. And uh, we, we see that in uh, John's life in the New Testament. But, um, you know, he they would serve on a rotation. But there was only one high priest. And, I, and that's what the author is really referring to here is the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And we talked about that last week, about how once a year the high priest would go and offer a sacrifice. He would take the blood of that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle that on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, on behalf of the people of Israel. He alone made the single most important sacrifice of, of the year for the entire nation of Israel. And as he did that, he served uh, the people as their mediator. He was the go-between because we read in the Old Testament 
that without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so that high priest would go and he would offer that blood. He would be that mediator. You know, of course, a mediator is one who brings two parties together through reconciliation. You know, we might think of that in terms of business. You know, two people that are entered into a contract and they can't see eye to eye. And so they need a third person to come in and help them to agree. But in the Bible, the biblical concept is to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. It's not just to get the two together, but it's how can sinful man approach a holy God. And we read, though, that while this priest was so special, uh, he, was, he was ordinary in the sense that he was from men, he was set apart, he offered the sacrifices, but we also read that he was just a person himself. Uh, as a matter of fact, in verse 2 we read, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, the weakness that he mentions here is the sins of the priest himself. He, because he is a person, because he is a man, he understands sin. And so, therefore, he can deal gently with the ignorant and, and the wayward. You know, he, he understands the, the struggle of the common man because he wrestles with the same things. He's tempted in the same way, with the same thoughts and the same actions and the same attitudes. And so... It's not like you can come to that priest and tell him something that's going to shock him, you know, because he understands that. But even though there, he is understanding towards those and deals gently with those who are ignorant and wayward, that knowledge does not lead the high priest to overlook sin in, in any way or to react in a condescending, hostile way towards other people. So there's that great balance. And, you know, we see that when someone is truly aware of their sin and they are repentant of that sin, then they are able to deal gently with the sin of others. But we've also all saw, seen the opposite as well. Maybe someone who is harsh and judgmental and, and their reaction is that way towards the sin of other people. Well, usually those people have lost an awareness of their own spiritual need. And that's why they act the way that they do. But. Anyways, the, the priest, uh, or the high priest, excuse me, uh, needed to have their sins forgiven. So as they prepared to come and to be the mediator for the people of God, they had to first, in their own weakness and in their own suffering, they had to come before the Lord to make sure that their sins were, were taken care of. And so, as we see here in our text, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well, as a matter of fact, the priest would isolate the high priest would isolate himself a week before the day of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, and and he would have to um, be in the priest's quarters inside the temple gates, and and during that time there would, he would go through these different cleansings, and where he might normally just have to cleanse his hands or his feet, he had to take a full bath. And uh, to show that cleansing. And then he had to put his clothes on just a certain way. And then he had to uh, go before the Lord in the morning on the day of Yom Kippur. And he had to offer a bull for his own sins and the sins of his people. We see that in Leviticus 16. And, and not only that, but then he would have to put his hands on that bull and he would have to confess his sins to remind him of of his, of his inherent natural sinfulness. And so there's this, this, this suffering, this weakness that the high priest had to suffer in order to be a mediator for his people. But then finally we see a requirement in verse 4 
that the high priest had to be called by God just as Aaron was called. You know, in verse 1, we see that idea of chosen from among men, appointed. All of these terms are really passive terms, showing us that, that this was an office that someone didn't seek out. They didn't say, hey, I want to be a priest, or I'll serve as the high priest. You know, but it was something where God called them to do that. And so, therefore, this office was one of humility and of service. And so, it wasn't something where men sought to do this. Now, I say that, but that's probably not totally true. Because there are examples where God raised up a man and anointed him to serve in a particular position. Uh, whether that be Moses in the wilderness... And or Aaron as, as the high priest. And yet there were others like Korah who, who claimed that Moses and Aaron had merely appointed themselves as the leaders over Israel. And they're like, and I can do better than you do. And God showed him that that was not the case by causing the earth to open up and swallow Korah and 250 of his followers. But, but we see that in other examples uh, in Scripture, and I'll, I'll let you look those up for yourself. But according to the Bible, no person worthy to be a priest ever sought the job for himself or volunteered for that position. God appointed them. He called them to that position. And he did so because of his choosing, not because they looked good on the outside or they were very talented. You know, we see examples where the Lord, like for with King David, you know, his older brother seemed much more competent from a worldly external perspective. And yet God says, no, David is a man after my own heart. And, and he chose David because it pleased him to do so. So only those appointed by God um, are ones that could serve as, as a priest. Only they could come in and give those offerings. So we see, as you look at the Old Testament priests, even though we didn't grow up Jewish and we didn't maybe know as much about that, you very clearly can get a sense in which there's, there's a great respect for the priesthood. They were a very important part of the Jewish life. That as, as the high priest, as he had written on his turban, holy to the Lord was, was the high priest. He was a uh, in solidarity with the people of Israel, and yet he was distinct from them so that he could stand before a holy God on their behalf. And at the same time, he represented them with sympathy and for care. He dealt gently with them in regards to their sin. But, but God created that position of, of the high priest for the specific purpose to serve as a picture of the great high priest who is to come. And the author from the Hebrews says, Jesus is him. Jesus is the great high priest. And, and so for Jesus to, to be that, he had to meet those qualifications. And the first thing we see in verse 5 is, is that Christ did meet the qualifications of being appointed by God is the great high priest. And then the author quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, and in both of those psalms, those are messianic psalms. So they're looking forward to the Messiah that was to come. And uh, in Psalm 2, it's a, the quote he gives is from Psalm 2, verse 7. And Psalm 2 is very familiar. It starts out, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, and so the nations are being rebellious against God and against his anointed. But he says in verse 7, 
I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And it is his son that he makes as the king. And so as, as we come to this, we see that, um, that this is not only the son of David and, and the line of David as a descendant of David, but he is the son of God who is the Messiah that is comes and who will rule over all things and who dispels all rebellion. But Psalm 10, or excuse me, 110, when you put that together with Psalm 2, you see some overlap because Psalm 110 really begins where Psalm 102 was. Uh, Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 begins with Christ being enthroned. He said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. God has established his, his king over Israel. But what's interesting is in verse 4 of Psalm 110, he informs us that the Messiah will also be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We read, the Lord has sworn and not changed his mind. In other words, God is the one who has established the Messiah as the priest. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about Melchizedek because when we come to chapter 7 of Hebrews, we're going to be talking a lot about Melchizedek and stuff. But let me just give you uh, just a little bit of background about him. The Bible really doesn't say a lot about Melchizedek. He really sort of comes on the scene in Genesis 14 where Abram uh, had his son, or his son, his nephew Lot captured by raiders and so Abram goes after him and he he not only reclaims him and all the other people that he lost but all the possessions and as he's coming back uh, Abram encounters this king the king of Salem the king of Jerusalem and Abram gives him a tenth of everything he has because this king is not only a king but also he's also a priest of the most high we read in Genesis 14:8 so we see here with Melchizedek, something that we don't see in Aaron's line of priesthood, that he is both a king, but he is also a priest. And, and that's what we know about Christ. The, the reason the author of Hebrews refers back to Melchizedek is his dual role as both king and priest. And he wants us to see that Jesus, the son, is both king and priest by the appointment of God. And he will occupy these two positions forever. So not only does Jesus give us the promise, he is the priest that gives us access to God, but he has the power to preserve us in our faith, which is what not only the Hebrews needed to hear, but we need to hear as well. That Jesus is the, the mighty one. Jesus has made a perfect atonement and God has accepted that perfect sacrifice. There's, there's no chance that God will reject the work of Christ as our great high priest. Therefore, those for whom the sacrifice was made are eternally secure in their position with God. You see, the believer's place in heaven is as secure as Christ's place in heaven. Did you hear that? That the believer's place in heaven is as secure as Christ's place in heaven. Because Jesus is our king priest. He is the one who rules over all. None, no one can snatch us 
from his hands. And so, as, as John Piper reminds us, he goes, this should give us great confidence as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when we're struggling and tempted to fear and to doubt, when we face temptations and, and accusations, Piper goes on and he says, do you want to become an oak tree saint or a cattail saint? And you think of the cattails where I grew up in the farmland of Indiana, you'd have cattails in the farm ponds. There'd just be this weed that would grow up and, and have brown top on it, and just sway in the wind everywhere. But an oak tree was, was firm. And, and so where are we going to stand? Well, not only was Christ called by God to be this priest king, but also we see that in the same way that the Jewish high priest knew his sin and underwent ritual cleansing in order to represent his people before the Lord with sacrifices and offerings, Jesus also suffered in his role as the great high priest. Look at verses 7 and 8. He goes, in the days of his flesh, that is when Jesus was incarnate, when he was a man, um, when he first became man, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Um, that whole idea of Christ crying out with l loud cries and tears, you know, probably brings to mind the Garden of Gethsemane, especially as he goes on, he says, to, he prayed to him who was able to save him from death. And, uh, and we know that Christ suffered greatly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the Bible describes it as great, that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. That Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. That he was in agony and, and he, his sweat became like great drops of blood. And so as Christ is, is crying out as the high priest for his people, he's, he's not crying out merely because of the physical horrors of crucifixion. I think that's how people oftentimes take this, that, that Christ doesn't want to die. And so that's why he is in great agony. Um, but I would suggest to you that he was not merely facing death, but he was facing what the Bible calls the second death. That is um, the punishment for sin. That is where God pours out his hot white wrath upon the sin of humanity. And where the, the, the high priest would make cleansing for his own sin... Jesus was preparing to pay the sins for those who were his people. He knew that a separation from God was coming as he made atonement for their sin. And so as Paul writes, that God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. And so he cries out to God in, in anguish. And he cries out to the one who is able to save him from death. And uh, some might take this to mean that Jesus desired to escape the cross and the grave. But the reality is, is that Jesus knew the Father's plan and he desired to do his will. As a matter of fact, he would say, Lord, take this cup, but your will be done. You know, in John 12, 27, we read that Jesus knew that his death was for the purpose in which he came into the world. That's why he came. And so he wasn't going to escape it. So Jesus didn't pray in order to escape death somehow, but rather he prayed in order to be saved out of death through the resurrection. In other words, he wasn't praying to be saved from death, but out of death. When he died, when he was separated from the Father, he wanted to be raised again. And so Jesus' prayer to be saved from death 
was a, be, was a prayer to be raised from the grave. And we read in Acts 2.24 how God answered the prayer of His Son. We read that God raised Him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. You see, the Father wasn't deaf to the prayer of His Son um, as He cried out. He, he heard and He answered the Son's prayers, we see here, because of His reverence. Now, a good way to think of his reverence is in terms of his awe, his devotion, his submission. And so the father heard the son because Jesus feared God and because he totally submitted his will to his father's will. And as a result, we read in verse 8 that Jesus learned obedience to God through what he suffered. Now, this is not implying that Jesus was disobedient at one point in time and now he learned to be obedient because we're told in, in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was without sin. So he wasn't disobedient. What, what he means is as Jesus experienced the trials that's associated with human existence, he learned how to obey his Father in those things. He, he was obedient to the Lord. Suffering taught Jesus how to submit to his to his will to the Father's will. And that's what suffering does for us as well. And I think that's sometimes why suffering is so difficult. It's, it's not just the circumstances that we go through that makes suffering so difficult, but it's also the fact that we must uh, resign ourselves to what God wants. We give over what we think ought to be done and, and just give ourselves to the Lord. Well, the cross... Uh, for Jesus meant great agony and great suffering. But it's interesting that he remained resolute in his willingness to be obedient, even obedient to the point of death, as Paul talks about in Philippians 2, verse 8. And, and so by faithfully enduring the suffering ordained by the Father's plan to redeem sinners through his own blood, Jesus learned that obedience. He he. Uh, manifest that obedience. But verse 9 tells us that Jesus was also perfected through his suffering. Jesus wasn't uh, made perfect in the sense that he was somehow impoverished and, and then now he's improved, he's gotten better, he's, he's perfect. Rather, he was made perfect in the sense that learning obedience through suffering was a prerequisite for becoming a qualified and sufficient high priest. He, he completed the task that God gave him to do. That word perfect can mean mature. It could be complete. It can mean finished. And Christ completed the mission that he was sent to do. And in being made perfect in, in completing that through the suffering of his death, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. Don't miss that word eternal. Our salvation is not fleeting. It's not flippant. But what Christ purchased for us was for all eternity. Christ as the source of our salvation is really synonymous with Christ being the founder or the author of our salvation. And so the eternal salvation that Jesus pioneers is only granted for all who obey him. It's, it's a, I like how one pastor put it. He goes, it's fitting that the one who learns obedience through what he suffered, that is Jesus, would stand as the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. 
Now, this doesn't mean somehow that we earn our salvation or through our works we somehow gain favor with God. Of course, he, he's saying that as we trust in him, as we have salvation in, in him, as we rest in his promises, as we trust him as our high priest, we look to him for the strength, for the grace, for the mercy to walk in obedience. So it's as God is, is working in us. The, the, and so the author of Hebrews is really coming back to this major theme that he's saying uh, once again, encouraging his people to obey Jesus and not to abandon the faith. But the only way to obey Christ is if we look to him daily as our high priest. And I, I think J.C. Ryle has put it the best. And I want to just close with this as we, as we think about Christ as our high priest and what this means for our day-to-day lives. He said, if Christ is really the priest of our souls then let us use him regularly and keep back nothing from him. In other words, utilize Christ each and every day. Don't don't hold back anything from him. It is a sorrowful fact that many believers enjoy the gospel far less than they ought to for lack of boldness in using the high priestly office of Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't understand the gospel. We don't utilize it to its fullness. It's, it'd be like having some powerful weapon and yet only utilizing a little bit of that power. He said, these kind of Christians go on mourning and weeping along the way to heaven, perplexing themselves by pouring over their infirmities and sins and carrying ten times as much weight on their backs as Christ ever met them to bear. You know, that even... Is, is, is we don't utilize Christ, what we're doing is, is we're struggling with our sins, we're perplexing, we're wrestling, we're having great difficulties, we're feeling the weight and the burdens of this world, and we were never intended to carry those things. We were to cast those cares upon Him. He said, ignorance, sad ignorance, is too often the simple account of the condition of these people. They think only of the death of Christ and not of the life of Christ. They think of his finished work on the cross, but forget his priestly intercession or his priestly prayers. If this be our case, let us turn over a new leaf and change our plan this very day. Let us think of Christ as a loving friend to whom we go morning, noon, and night and get relief from him every day. Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Let us live the life of faith in the Son of God and hold communion with him continually. Let us use him every morning as a fountain of grace and help and drink freely from that fountain. Let us use him every evening as a fountain of absolution and refreshment. In other words, let us come to God at the end of each day asking for forgiveness for the sins that we have committed that day. And let us be refreshed and draw out of him living waters. He that tries this plan will find it for the health of his soul. He who does this will find his soul strengthened and healthy. How often do we seek to try to live the Christian life the best way we have? When in reality, God has given us a great high priest, a high priest who has not only fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament priest, but even exceeding them. 
and who sits in the throne in heaven on our behalf. Let's bow our heads this morning for a time of silence as we meditate upon God's word this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are our high priest. That as we come today, that we are not alone. That we have one who is not only greater than us, but one who has been sent by God himself to be our mediator on our behalf. One who is our strength. One who is our guide. Lord, in these times of testing, these times of trials, in the midst of this pandemic, some of us have been pushed to, to very difficult places. And Lord, we have done the best way we know how to cope. But Lord, I pray instead that we would turn to you. God, I pray that we would find strength in you, that our souls would be refreshed and renewed. So Lord, please call us by your Holy Spirit all throughout the day to come to you. Lord, bring to mind much this week, this sermon, to know that we are not alone. Father, I pray for any that might be listening who are not Christians, those who who um, have never, ever confessed that they believe in Jesus Christ. But Lord, I pray if you are speaking to their hearts that they would know that this forgiveness is for them as well, that this mediator is for them, and that they would acknowledge their sin, their rebellion against you, their self-sufficiency, that God, that they would ask you for forgiveness, knowing that you are the God who truly forgives, who has provided the only perfect mediator, and that God, that they would receive the not only the forgiveness of their sins, but the eternal life that comes only through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.